You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome, 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 friend. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, weird history, and spooky history for the month of October. Today, dear one, we are talking about a Halloween OG. Because it doesn't get much more Halloween-y than vampires. But our vampires today are not sparkly when they go out into the sun and uh, start inappropriate relationships with teenage girls. Cough, cough. Edward was too old for Bella. We, in fact, are talking about the Rhode Island Vampire Scare, and more broadly, the New England Vampire Scare. We've got mass hysteria, we got digging up dead family members, and we got a whole bunch of superstitious shenanigans. So grab your best clove of garlic, a good strong steak for poking, and maybe a turtleneck sweater, because you can never be too safe. And let's get to it. We have New England to thank for vampires. Oh yes, friend, there would be no Edward Cullen, no sexy Brad Pitt as a vampire, no Count Chocula. Nay, nay, the modern vampire would not be what it is today without the panic that gripped the nation that resulted in neighbors, fathers, sisters, and doctors digging up remains and performing vampire exterminations. We begin our tale today in Rhode Island, a place whose name I cannot spell to save my life. Why is there an H in there? That makes no sense, and frankly, it's rude. (laughs) But I digress. Our story begins in 1892 with the death of a young girl in the isolated town of Exeter, Rhode Island. After the Civil War, Exeter was little more than a ghost town. Its population of 2,500 in 1820 fell to 961 a few years later. The government had been seizing the abandoned farmland and was burning what was left. But something far worse was plaguing the town. The remaining families of Exeter were in the grips of consumption and a vampire curse. Our young main character was a shell of the once lively young woman she had been but months before. It was as if something or someone had been sucking the life out of her. In 1892, young Mercy Brown would finally succumb to whatever malady had befallen her. But dear one, this is only the beginning of the story. This poor 19-year-old girl would become an international sensation, and her death and undeadness would be plastered on nearly every news outlet there was. Years before Mercy's death, The Brown family had suffered from the unforgiving effects of consumption. And you know what? If we're being perfectly honest here, I 
had no idea what consumption was for the longest time. Whenever people talked about consumption, I would just nod my head and be like, ah, yes, yes, consumption. I 100% know what that is. Uh, no need to explain any further because I am right there with you. But I so badly wanted someone to explain it because I had no idea what it was and I was too scared to ask. I I just didn't know. <laughs> and so I I don't want you to feel that way. If you don't know what consumption is, so I'm just going to tell you, consumption is tuberculosis. I don't know why we just don't say tuberculosis, but that's fine. That's what the folks called it. I'm not here to judge. I'm just here to report. Sometimes I judge. But not today. We're not judging today. <laughs> now we digress. My sweet little candy corn. So consumption, super awful. It was just straight up murdering people left and right. And the Brown family had it bad. In 1882, Mercy's mother, Mary Eliza, would be the first to die. Then her sister, Mary Olive, her older sister. Both women were wasting away right before the family's eyes. But that's what consumption does. Healthy people turn into walking skeletons, seemingly overnight. Families were wiped out in a matter of weeks. Both unfortunately died, and just a few years later, Mercy and her brother Edwin and their father, George, would fall victim to this unseen evil. This family was by no means the only ones affected, but the town was convinced that something sinister was afoot in the Brown household. Mercy's father, George, would somehow recover, but Mercy would not. And after his sister's death, Edwin was somehow still holding on to life. And now poor George Brown had his wife die, his two daughters die, and one son was holding on for dear life, would, which would be enough heartbreak for any person to deal with. But on top of all of that, he was also facing the wrath of the villagers of Exeter. Although the local doctor had confirmed that the culprit was indeed consumption, the villagers had their own ideas. Fueled by fear and superstition, a group of men entered Exeter's Chestnut Hill Cemetery with one goal in mind, to find and kill a vampire. Yes, friend. They were convinced that one of the deceased members of the Brown family was in fact not dead at all, but rather a life-sucking vampire. But this was by no means uncommon. In fact, it was, it was a whole-ass pandemic that had been going on for years in New England. First it was the witches, and then it was the vampires. New England pre-1900s was a regular Halloween monster extravaganza. There was mass hysteria over everything. And New England, girl, are you okay? Do we need to call somebody? You can call me. We'll get it sorted. Not everything has to be a whole panic, okay? We can, we can just be chill about some things. Anyways, enough personifying a region of the United States. So the men of Exeter entered the church to exhume the bodies of the three brown women to see which one was a vampire. 
How do you ID a vampire, you ask? Excellent question, my little bat friend. Let me tell you. It's not by their sparkly skin in the sun, okay? Okay. First, you got to dig up the body, okay? You got to take, take the, the box, the, the casket. Yeah, that's what it's called. <laughs> take the casket out of the ground. If there's little to no decomposition and the body seems like it might have moved around in the coffin, you know, shifted positions a bit, those are your first indicators. But they are not 100% proof positive. Because those might just be signs of a person accidentally getting buried alive because it was totally a thing that happened more often than I care to think about. (laughs) So to really ID a bloodsucker, you got to get the body out and do some backyard autopsy shenanigans. Now, each region in New England had its own vampire autopsy flavor, but for the most part, they would cut out the heart, and if it was still oozing blood you had a vampire on your hands. When Mercy Brown's mother and sister were exhumed, they looked like a person who had been dead and buried for a few years ought to look. But Mercy, apparently, was more plump than when she died. Her nails were longer, her hair had grown, and some said that her body was not in its original position. But to be certain that the vampire was indeed mercy. They cut out her heart, which was full and oozing blood. The people of Exeter had their scapegoat, and mercy was the one to blame. So what's next? They found the alleged vampire, so how did they stop her? Again, the way to kill a vampire and save its victims varied greatly depending on where you were in New England. But in the case of Mercy Brown, her heart was plucked out and burned to ash on a nearby stone. And that stone is still there. Well, it's, it's one of the two in the cemetery. There's only two stones that it could possibly be. It's one of those. We're not sure what it is, but it's definitely one of them. However, burning the heart was not the end of this vampire banishing remedy. Her brother Edwin was still sick and therefore needed to... Of course, eat his sister's hard ashes mixed with water. They weren't animals, okay? Mixed with water. So they just took a few scoops of Mercy's heart ash, mixed it up, made a little tincture. I know. I know. I feel your vibes. I have no words for how I feel because uh, in school, I did not realize how often people ate human remains back in the day. Why was this not the first thing my history teacher told me? Told all of us, really. There I was, sitting in U.S. history class, learning about freaking cash crops of the colonies when I could have been learning about exhuming bodies and 1800s cannibalism, okay? What the heck? I feel robbed. What the hell? Anyways, I digress. (laughs) All of this sounds absolutely silly, doesn't it? But that's because we have science We have science people on our side and germ theory and hand sanitizer and all that good, good medical science-y business. Germ theory was published in 1861 in France by Louis Pasteur, but it would take until the 1920s for it to really become accepted worldwide. And the tiny towns and villages in New England had more faith in the remedies of the locals 
than some fancy doctor from the city that they did not know. We do not know him. He might not be safe. That is a reasonable assumption. But here's the thing. Edwin still died from consumption, even after the ash water medicine. Shocker, I know. But people were still convinced that the curse was broken. And through sheer coincidence, the Brown family members stopped dying of consumption. But let's do a little bit of myth-busting now. Let's first talk about the reason for Mercy's lack of decomposition. She had been dead only a few months compared to the years her mother and sister were. And when Mercy died, it was like the dead of winter. And New England is cold as hell. And the ground is often so cold that it's frozen. And it it was the case when Mercy died. So the ground was too cold to bury her. So she was put in a shed for a whole long time until the ground thawed out. And she was essentially refrigerated until she was exhumed. She was refrigerated in the shed. She was refrigerated in the ground. That's why she did not decompose. Mercy wasn't a vampire. She was a human popsicle. Now let's talk about the oozing heart. Mercy had been dead for months. So why was her heart bleeding? Apparently, that is just a natural part of decomposition. Humans' organs ooze weird things when they decompose. It's like super gross and I don't really want to talk about it, but I will link a really great YouTube video that I watched for you, friend. I watched it for you, even though it gave me the absolute heebie-jeebies and I had to like hide my eyes because I am not a blood person. I don't like it, but I watched it for you so I could know more information about this. And the nails and the hair thing, also just a natural part of decomposition, but they didn't know. They had no idea. So once again, not a vampire, just a decomposing human, human popsicle. The story of Mercy Brown is by no means an isolated incident. Hers was just the most sensational because of timing and dumb luck, which is a very powerful combo. Mercy's story would be the one that captured the attention of the entire world. A journalist from the Providence Journal actually witnessed Mercy being exhumed. He was there and he wrote about it. And not many people outside of these extremely isolated towns knew about the absolute shit show that was going down in New England. So when a prominent newspaper was like, um, y'all heard about the shit that's going down in New England? Look at what these New Englanders are doing out here in the 19th century when we're supposed to be science and educated and all that jazz. People lost their minds. And the story of Mercy Brown took the world by storm. And I have to read you this really salty hot take from one writer at a small town Connecticut paper. He said, 
we seem to have been transported back to the darkest age of unreasoning ignorance and blind superstition instead of living in the 19th century and in a state calling itself enlightened and Christian. He's referring to Rhode Island. Shade thrown at Rhode Island. Folklorist and author Michael Bell has kind of unofficially made it his personal mission to document the New England vampire panic, specifically Rhode Island's vampire panic, and wrote a book called Food for the Dead, On the Trail of New England's Vampires, where he uses evidence from 80 exhumations that have been discovered to explain how something like this could possibly happen. Hey, editing TK here. I just went down a Google rabbit hole trying to find like exhumation statistics for the U.S. because I was like 80. 80 is like not, it seemed like not that much. And then I did some more research and I, I couldn't find them, but I did learn that it's very labor intensive and it's covered by five different federal laws to exhume a body. And these New England people were just like willy nilly digging folks up and cutting out their hearts like a little over a hundred years ago. What? It's bananas. So the number 80 now seems much more large to me. And this is only the number that have been discovered. Okay. Okay. Anyways, uh, back to the episode. Bye. Michael explains this phenomenon in more detail in his book, but the gist of the situation is that there was an outbreak of a terrifying invisible disease in an area of the U.S. that lacked access to the outside world and thus modern science and medicine. So they filled that void with the only thing humans have in a situation like that. Hope and superstition. In the absence of actual treatment, they used vampire exhumations as medicine. This wasn't monster hunting. This was essentially a trip to the pharmacy. Bell writes in his book, People find themselves in dire situations where there's no recourse through regular channels. He explains that the folk system offers an alternative, a choice. And sometimes superstitions represent the only hope that people have. So as we close out our episode today, let's return once more to our friend Mercy. As I said, her story was the one that made it out of New England and onto the world stage. It captured the attention of the world and was one of the matches that lit the fire of the horror genre. A young, beautiful girl with an angelic name like Mercy, a sinister New England secret, dark folk medicine, and a cursed family. It couldn't have been planned any better. It was sensational and the perfect source for writers everywhere to draw inspiration, most notably Brom Stoker, who wrote a little story. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Dracula. And from Dracula, even more vampire lore and entertainment was created. And now we have Edward Cullen's Count Chocula's That Counting Vampire from Sesame Street, and other sexy vampires all over the world.
Well, friend, we have come to our final thought, and this one is just so str so strange to me. It's very brief and very weird. So here goes. The people of New England never actually called the people that they exhumed vampires. It was the outside news outlets and media that gave them that name. No documents written by the people doing the exhumations ever referred to them as vampires. Isn't that just a weird little history nugget. I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> well, my spooky ooky history friend, that is all she wrote. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you enjoyed this episode, send it to your other history BFF. Tell your barista about it. Yell it from the highest office building within a one mile radius of your current location. And if you haven't done it already, please leave a rating and a review it really helps other history lovers and the historically curious find our community. You can also support For the Love of History on Patreon. The first Sleepy History episode is out, and it's a really good one. I tell you the story of the spring and the autumn lovers. There's also a poll starting this week for the bonus episode that will only be available on Patreon and a bunch of other fun stuff, like merch discounts. All for just $2 a month. But, as always, no pressure. I'm just happy you're here. So until next week, do something that makes you happy. Carry garlic with you at all times. Drink your water. And I will see you next week when we talk about Japanese yokai and some scorned badass ladies. Okay, bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Oh, okay. <laughs>